0: Welcome to The Root of the Matter, brought to you by UPL. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you fresh ideas and insights about agriculture in North America. I'm your host, Ken Root. The news is filled with headlines and dramatic photos of wildfires in the western United States. The sidebar story is about increasing evidence of climate change around the world brought on by human actions. All of this points to a hotter future while we're still alive. From an agricultural perspective, how bad is this drought on crop and livestock producers? From a scientific perspective, what caused this drought? And the most troubling, should we expect hotter than normal weather or more erratic weather in our future? Joining me to talk about this subject is Don Day, president of Day Weather, an agriculture weather forecasting company heard primarily on radio stations across the Intermountain West. Don Day, welcome to Root of the Matter. Thanks for having me, Ken. What is your location? I understand you're up in the Pacific Northwest, or at least the mountainous northwest, and what region do you report on each day?
1: So I'm located in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and so our specialty is the Rocky Mountains and the Western High Plains. So our focus is basically the Intermountain West, and then as you get into the Western Dakotas, Western Nebraska, Western Kansas, that's where we're our focus, our attention.
0: What's going through your head as you see this drought unfold? Is this really a game changer?
1: Well, I think when we when we see a drought like this the first thing that i've learned uh in my 30 years of weather forecasting is is to take a step back and take a look at what we view as and and use as as a forecasting tool is what's called analogs which is all right we're in a drought situation have we seen anything like this before and if we have Are there similarities? Are there certain things that happened before that give us clues to what's happening now? So when we started to go into the strong La Nina that got started in the spring of 2020, this honestly started to look a lot like 2011 and 2012. Mm -hmm. And we also have to remember that 2019 was extremely wet in many areas of the the Northern Plains, parts of the Corn Belt. So I think what has taken people aback so much is that we went from one extreme to the other. But I wanna go back to 2012, because 2012 was a drought in terms of intensity and length, very similar to what we're experiencing now. And what is really interesting, Ken, is, is that one thing that I have learned from using analogs Uh, is is that I have become more of a weather historian in terms of forecasting because I have learned that my long-range forecasting has improved when I use less computer modeling and use historical weather trends more as a guide. Now, I use computer models every day. They're wonderful. But what I tell people all the time is weather modeling, they're tools, They're not reality. I think there's a tendency to jump on weather modeling and take it as the gospel, when in reality, it's just a tool to tell us what a trend might be. So when we look at 2012 and 2011, those very dry years, but especially the summer of 12, is that we had just come off of a strong La Nina that lasted two years. And you know what also happened in 2009 and 2010? We actually had just gone through a solar minimum. We had gone through a solar minimum in 2009 and 2010. We just got done with a solar minimum at the end of 2019 and 2020. So you might be correct if you're thinking, well, Don is talking about some solar interactions. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. Because one thing we have seen a pattern is, is that during solar minimums, there appears to be the tendency for La Niñas to form in the Pacific, and they tend to be stronger and longer-lasting. How do we connect that with a drought? Well, if the Pacific Ocean near the subtropical region near the equator is colder than normal, those sea surface temperatures are cooler, there's less water vapor going into the air. I like to use the analogy of a when you fill up a bathtub full of hot water, What's going to happen to all your mirrors and all the metal objects in your bathroom? They're going to steam up. So there's water going back into the air. So if the Pacific is warmer, there's more water vapor in the air. If the Pacific is colder, there's less water evaporating into the air, going into the air. So you have less water coming into North America. That's why there is really nothing good about a La Nina. Analog forecasting did show us that there was going to be a higher probability of us going from a very wet 2019 to a drier 2021. And if you look at severe droughts in the central and especially the Western states, you will find a fairly strong correlation that they happen between every nine and 11 years. And they coincide with these very strong La Nina patterns. So, there's good news and there's bad news Mm -hmm. when it comes to our current drought.
0: Well, you are giving me uh, weather history, which I do enjoy. uh, But you remind me also of uh, Dr. Elwin Taylor, who is the Iowa state climatologist of many years, who I've uh, watched a lot of his very interesting presentations. And I told him one time, I said, Elwin, you can predict the past better than anybody (laughs) I have ever met. And I know that it's easy to talk about that, and, but then it's the translation into the future. But I will give Elwin this. He had one thing that he said that you might comment on if you would. He said that chatter, as he called it, was beginning to increase. And in his weather history, he noticed that the worst of these were in the 30s, the 50s, the 80s, I'm not sure we were in the teens by the time he told me that. But he said the next one he was predicting would peak in 2025.
1: Yes. You know, and and so a lot of those cycles he talked about, which are the, those 20 or 30 year cycles, if you were to talk about those time periods they talked about, is what we go through in the Pacific Ocean called the Pacific Decadal Oscillations, which is basically we're talking about sea surface temperatures again in the Pacific Ocean and where these warm and cold spots are in the Pacific. The Pacific takes about 20 or 30 years to go through these cycles. And the thing to remember is is that in North America, we are strongly tied to what happens in the Pacific. So when you talk about these, these cycles, there are some really strong connections there. That's why the historical perspective is sometimes look at, but I'm going to make it, I'm going to do, a, I'm going to stick my neck out here a little bit, Ken. And so All right. using my historical things and what Dr. Taylor talked about is the good news is, is that we are going to cycle out of this drought, in my opinion, and we're going to start to cycle out of it in the spring and summer of 2022. Why do I say that? Well, because That's what usually happens out in the Pacific, is is that after a two-year La Nina, there is a natural balancing act that will take place in the subtropical Pacific to where we'll likely go into a weak El Nino, followed by a stronger one in 2023. And what you'll see is you'll see the rain and snow increase in the western states, and some of that's going to translate also into the Dakotas, into the northern plains and part of the western Corn Belt that is using not only historical trends but when we start to see some of our our long-range modeling hint at that that gives us more confidence as well so it's a little bit of a machine man mix the man part of it is the historical perspective the machine part is do the does the modeling start to agree with that and that's what we're seeing so i'm a little bit optimistic that we have seen the worst of it and that it will not continue in the 22 or 23.
0: Don Day, who is uh, with uh, Day Weather, his company gives weather forecasts each day, meteorologist uh, for 30 years. Let me squeeze you a little bit here because uh, global warming is being kicked around. I mean, front page of the papers, more news just lately that the United Nations is saying it's clear and they are gonna have a major change. And before I push you off the edge on that one, let me tell you that I have traveled places across the world for the last 45 years, and some of those were giving me indications of major change years ago. One of them was in Brazil. I was in Brazil in the early 80s, just as they were beginning to remove the vegetation and turn it into fields. And when I was there, Uh, They said uh, it rains every afternoon at 5 o'clock, which I thought was not true until 5 o'clock that day and the next day and the next day. And it rained exactly within a few minutes of that time every day. I went back again after they had brought more cropland into production than the total in the United States uh, in the early 2000s. And I said, what about the rains? And they say, well, it still rains pretty close to five o'clock, but it rains harder. Is there a parallel in what they said and what the complaint is today that as the climate warms up, the rains are more intense and the storms are more intense?
1: Well, yeah, well, you've just opened a really big can of worms (laughs) because um, this this is a very difficult topic. me to wade through because there is a lot of things about the current climate change debate global warming things that i certainly agree with and there's a lot of things i do not and all you have to do is if you uh have about 10 hours to read the nearly four thousand page document that the un released yesterday you would find out if you if you go into the details that is low to moderate confidence that we have heavier rain or heavier storms because of climate change it's, and it's very regional, you know, and that's one thing I always warn people about is, is that we tend to look at climate change and global warming as, as one glove fits all. It really doesn't. The world is too big and the atmosphere is way too dynamic for an evening of the playing field in terms of everybody's gonna have the same impacts or everyone's going to be able to see something similar. Regional impacts, you know, you you talked about, uh, you had mentioned that they had just cleared the land, okay? So there's probably stronger evidence that land use changes, clearing a forest, uh, irrigating fields may have bigger impacts locally on the weather and the climate as compared to larger scale things. So uh, this is a real hornet's nest, quite honestly, in in terms of digging down into the details. And actually, you know, the global temperature anomaly, if you were to look at satellite data since 1979, the last year, we've actually seen global temperature anomalies go below zero, meaning they've actually, in January, February, and March, were either at the 30-year average or slightly below. So... Has the earth gotten warmer in the last 30 years? Absolutely. But it's also going through fluctuations. It's not a linear trend of temperatures constantly rising. That's the fear. But one thing that that people need to be careful about when they read the news, and especially when they hear end of the world scenarios, is, is that if you really are concerned, read the report, because what ends up getting reported on and what's in the report are sometimes two different things.
0: Well, I am fearful that one of these evenings I'm going to look out west and there's a little sign on the horizon that says the end. (laughs) But the reality of the day, and I'm sure a number of our growers are here listening to you, and and I'm sure enjoying weather theory because we all love to talk about the weather, uh, are very concerned about the moment. I'm wondering about these fires I mean, you don't get these fires if you didn't get some rain at some time to grow that vegetation that then dries up and then sets the fires, at least in the grassy areas. But are these fires themselves deadly to agriculture uh, more than the obvious?
1: Well, you bring up an excellent point. We talked about 2019 as being very wet you know where it was very wet in 2019, California. So yeah. all of that growth dried out. And that's one, that's one reason why the wildfires in Northern California and the Pacific Northwest are so bad was because of actually heavier precipitation. You know, in terms of your, your question about in terms of agriculture, the, the impacts of the fire activity on the, the real weather, like what we're experiencing now, seeing the smoke and seeing the haze, there is gonna be some impacts with, with temperature. But the atmosphere is extremely efficient at cleaning itself out, whether it's forest fire smoke, volcanic ash, or whether it's pollutants that we're putting into the atmosphere. So um, if you were to look at the current fire situation, the number of fires in the acres burned, even though you're hearing about fires on the news constantly, we still haven't reached the acreage burn that we had in, guess what, 2012. 2012. So that was the last year where we had fires big like this. And again, I'm going to draw that connection. to If the Pacific is cold, North America gets droughty. And that is something to keep in mind that when is our next really big drought? It's probably going to be in 2030, 2031, or 2032.
0: Hmm. Tell me about this smoke. Is this smoke in its own way doing anything to other areas of the country to throw the normal weather off?
1: slight changes in temperature and more than anything visibility and people who have have asthma who have allergies that's where it's going to be impactful the most you know one thing that smoke does do and has since the dawn of time is put into the air what we call condensation nuclei small microscopic particles of ash and dust that helps clouds form and helps rain to eventually develop So wildfires are actually part of the weather cycle and have been since, well, since we've been around and before we've been around.
0: Do you feel like uh, this agricultural drought here is one of the most severe in your part of the world? Uh, I, I know you don't live in a vacuum there and surely in Cheyenne, Wyoming, you've got people in agriculture, especially ranchers who are greatly concerned about keeping their cattle herd so, are they being hit hard in your view?
1: Yes, absolutely. And it was something that we saw really this this past summer uh, in 2020 was extremely hard um, in in the in the Rockies and the Western High Plains and the Northern Plains. It was certainly the worst drought, uh, worst summer since the summer of 2012. Now, there are actually areas of the West that have shown improvement. In fact, there has been remarkable improvement. We're still in drought conditions, but there has been areas of Arizona, New Mexico, parts of Utah, and parts of Colorado that saw two to 300% nor- of normal rainfall during the month of July. So there are pockets of improvement, but I like to call them islands of improvement in a sea of dryness. And that is something that uh, we're going to, unfortunately, with this La Nina continuing into the fall and early winter, is going to still be a concern.
0: You know, my oaky past has told me that weather extremes happen often. And this year, my friends there are experiencing a wonderful summer. I mean, they're not just an island. Uh, they're they're having great rains that are totally unexpected this time of year in the southern plains that's exactly
1: right and and that's one thing that's been lost Um, if you were to compare temperatures so far this summer and precipitation in those areas you just mentioned the southern plains the gulf coast region you know it was not until recently that dallas texas even hit 100 degrees i mean they went a long time before they got to 100 degrees if you were to contrast the above average precipitation and the below normal and the above the above normal precipitation and the below normal temperatures in the southern plains on top of the other extreme that happened in the pacific northwest with the heat wave and what's going on it's they actually even each other out so so what has been equally remarkable about the drought in the west is the cooler wet conditions that have developed in the Southern Plains. And, and again, I'm gonna sound like a broken record for those folks who remember what a record was. You know, when you would get a scratch or a big piece of dust on the record, it would just repeat itself. Again, I'm gonna go back to the Pacific and La Nina. One thing and one thing that is very frequent in a strong La Nina are these, what we call blocking patterns where you get stuck where you will get a pattern where one area will have one extreme and the other area will have the opposite. And that's exactly what happened this summer so far in the Pacific Northwest, hot and dry, and then the Southern Plains cool and wet. Remember that little snap of cold weather that happened in February down in Texas and the Mm -hmm. Gulf Coast? Yes, I do. Okay. That is another example of a La Nina-driven blocking pattern to where you concentrate areas of heat and areas of cold in one area that can be rather persistent. So when people talk about weather extremes, you can talk about climate change and global warming all you want to, but it's a mistake to ignore these ocean-driven cycles like El Nino and La Nina, because that is a pattern that we have recognized that shows up regardless of greenhouse gases. And that's one thing that does concern me a little bit, especially with our new generation of weather forecasters, is they're so model driven, they tend to not be able to see the forest for the trees. So a lot of these extremes that we're experiencing, if you you notice when they happen, they do tend to happen with these Pacific Ocean cycles.
0: You know, you're the first voice of moderation in weather that I've talked to in quite a while or I've observed. I watch the Weather Channel and they say, well, this model shows this and this model shows this. And they talk more about the models fighting each other than they talk about what they think the weather is actually (laughs) going to be. But I wonder if we as people who have cell phones, smartphones, and can get instant weather of all kinds in front of us, are maybe a little overwhelmed by this and making too many assumptions of our own interpretation and not going back to some midline basis that you might have.
1: Well, that's an excellent point, Ken, because I tell people a lot of what I do every day is a little bit of psychology because how you present the weather information is, is just as important as you know, what the high and low is going to be today. Um, and, and I do feel that we are bombarded with more weather information than we ever have before. One thing that drives me crazy is I'll say something on the radio about a weather forecast, and then I'll have somebody says, well, my iPhone says it's mm-hmm. not going to rain today, but you says it's going to rain today. And what I tell people is is that take one or two weather apps, or just one, and and get used to it, but don't give yourself so much information because if if you really knew how the sausage was made when it comes to the weather information that ends up on your phone or your computer screen, is there is almost no human interaction with that weather data. To be able to get weather on your phone or on your computer screen, we have to have massive server farms generating graphics, generating these forecasts based on, you guessed it, the weather data that comes out of the modeling. So so what will happen is, is, you know, a very quick story. When I was in college in the late 80s and early 90s, I had a professor say meteorologists would not be needed by the year 2000 because computer modeling would be supreme and that the computer processing speed would get to the point where the, the computers would have the weather forecast right all the time. Well, it's 2021 and we you still need that human element. So it's one of those situations where people do need to kind of take a step back and not believe the black and white that's on the screen sometimes and look up. I always tell people, you know what? Look up and observe the weather. Um, but it's hard to get people to look up. You see people walking down the street looking at the weather on their phone and not observing it and learning from it.
0: Well, Don, I had this theory that if they would just shoot one of you who got the weather forecast wrong, <laughs> uh, that could, you know, uh, tighten your forecast uh, comments up a bit if you wanted to preserve your life.
1: Oh, that's one of my favorite expressions is, you know, don't shoot the messenger uh, in terms of providing bad news when it comes to the weather. But you're right. Maybe if there was a little more pressure on us, <laughs> you know, it's it's like in the old days when they would have the, uh, people come in front of the kings and queens making predictions and off with their heads if they were wrong, right?
0: Yeah. Well, I have, we have a mutual friend, uh, Mike Smith, who had weather data, and uh, he used to get confronted by people about the weather forecast. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm in marketing, not production. (laughs) And I think in this half hour that I thoroughly enjoyed talking with you, the questions I have in some areas remain unanswered because I don't think we can answer them. But you have moderated me back away from the edge of convinced that global warming is going to run things each year in a pattern that we've never seen before, and then the reasons that weather occurs as it does. And one thing you touched on earlier, if you could expand a little bit on that, this solar cycle. I've had people for years talk about the solar cycles, thinking that was a major driver on weather. You said we are, we're at a minimum. We
1: just had a solar minimum that basically reached its bottom in late 19, 2019 and early 2020. We're now headed to the next solar cycle, which is solar cycle 25. And I will tell folks, we, we don't have enough time, Ken, to go into solar, but I cannot tell you how strongly I feel and other meteorologists that that I work with about how important solar activity is to our weather and climate. Unfortunately, it's maligned, and it's only maligned for political reasons because if the solar activity does affect our weather and climate more than we realize, that goes counter to the, the ideas that it's all about carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases. We woefully have a lack of knowledge, and we are woefully short on the funding for the research in solar activity and weather climate right now. If you were to go to the federal government or other funding agencies, National Science Foundation, you said, I want to do a study on weather and climate and solar activity, you're not going to get a dime. And that's really unfortunate. Because there has always been a weather-sun connection, a weather-space connection, but right now it's just not in vogue.
0: Well, I have to take from all of this that weather forecasting is an inexact science, or it's a science that cannot get all the details together at one time to make a prediction that's always correct. Is that correct?
1: You are correct. It is still very much, I don't want to call it an art because it's not an art, but the best weather forecasters are like the best airline pilots. Now, what does that mean? When you get on a plane full of people, what what kind of hair do you want to see on that captain when he greets you at the door? Do you want an 18 year old flying the 747 or do you want a pilot that's been through it all? And that's really important in weather forecasting because you only become a better weather forecaster if the mo- you can't rely on the models, but you rely on your experience and what the best thing that can happen to a weather forecaster, and I will put myself in this position because I've worked on some very high profile projects where when you make a mistake, a bad forecast, you can learn from that and make yourself better. So there is a machine man mix, as I mentioned earlier, to the, to the art of weather forecasting.
0: Well, you do it every day and uh, you certainly uh, do it well. Tell me where you can be heard on a daily basis. Well, if anybody's
1: driving through the Intermountain West, whether it's in Wyoming or Colorado along Interstate 70, Interstate 80, uh, you're going to hear me on, on lots of F- FM and uh, AM radio stations throughout the Intermountain West, as well as portions of western Nebraska. I do a daily podcast uh, Monday through Fridays with a slant towards the western United States at dayweather.com uh, is another way that you can get our information.
0: Don Day from Day Weather thank you very much for being with us on The Root of the Matter Thanks for having me Ken Thanks for listening to The Root of the Matter sponsored by UPL New episodes will be available every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts Have a great day